good. Pumpkin spice lovers out there? Pumpkin spice haters out there? Yeah, all right, good, 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 good. We want to be a diverse church in every way, including our views on different holiday beverages. Well, we are in a series called How to Get Rich. And if you're new to church or new with us in this series, it's the last week, and I still want to alleviate your fears. This series, it hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen today. It is not going to end with us passing the offering plate, like Kelly said, no offering plate. There's not going to be a building campaign that starts after this series. We are simply looking at Jesus' teachings on wealth and values and money. And we've had this premise throughout the entire series in the book of Luke, chapter 12-ish through 16 today, which is this, that if being rich means having a ton of what you value most, then we've gotta be pretty sure what we're gonna value most, and then we need to be figure out a way that we're going to amass a ton of it. And so we've talked about a lot of things that we should not try to get rich around, money, status, fame. We've talked about things that we should try to get rich around, our relationship with the Lord, reaching lost people. And today we close our series in Luke chapter 16. So you can turn there if you'd like. I'll read it in a minute. But before I read it, I, I wanna kinda set the tone with a question. We started this series with the question of what would you do if you won the lottery? And some of you have not listened to any sermons that I've preached ever since that because you just keep thinking about what you would do if you won the lottery, right? Now it's time for that question to go away. Hopefully we've learned a lot about what we value and we don't just want to win the lottery. But, but here's the new question for the end of our series, which is similar to the first question, but what I'm hoping is that your heart and your life and your values have changed enough in this series that when I ask you this question, now you can answer this one with excitement and fervor. The question is, if you won the lottery, what would you do to invest in God's kingdom purposes? And if you were filthy rich, like we started this series, what would you do to further the gospel of Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not talking about passing a plate. I'm not even talking about giving to your local church. What would you do to further the kingdom of God if you had unlimited resources? I know some of you think about this all the time, right? You dream about being that person who writes like $50,000, $5,000, $1,000 checks to charity or dropping off a bag of money on a needy person's front porch and saying, it's anonymous, it's from the Lord, right? You would love the idea of being rich and godly. Some of you have a dream of starting a nonprofit, saying, you know, if I didn't have to work, this is what I would do. I would serve underprivileged youth in our community, and I would do discipleship and college prep and help them get scholarships, and I'd raise the water level of vitality in this region. That's what I would do if I didn't need money, and I had money to spend. Some of you want to start an endowment to pay for kids to go to camp, right? Some of you would get creative with it, right? You'd find ways to bless people around the globe. You'd give a million dollars to missions, right? That's what you'd do if you had unlimited resources to further the kingdom of God. As we talked a little bit about the ultimate goal in life should not be to be rich, but sometimes it's fun to think about what would happen if you were godly and rich, if you got rich and you had a heart that all you wanted to see was the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth and transform our region, our community, and our world. And the problem is, as we've walked through this series and walked through the teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke, right in the middle of the book of Luke, you may have noticed that we've talked about money less and less and less as we've walked through this series called How to Get Rich, right? We started out real strong. 
talking about a rich person and their actual money. And then we started talking a little bit about social capital, relational capital, fame. And then we stopped talking about money altogether. We started talking about the fact that if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you all your money, he says. We talked about last week that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a heart that's passionate, not about money and riches and fame, but about lost people. And it feels like, for some of you, this series was a bit of a bait and switch, because what we promised was a series about money, and now we're just talking about Jesus stuff instead. I'm not going to make you raise your hand if that's you. But if that's you, like if you've been really hoping for a series that helps you learn how to spend your wealth on God's purposes, good news for you, today the series ends where it started. We're talking about money again. We're gonna look at a parable that talks about someone, kind of like the first parable, how they used their money and how Jesus was proud of the way they used their money. And the way they used their money was crazy to us, but wise to Jesus. And so we're gonna talk today about how to spend God's money to get rich, both in this world and the world to come in every single way. And to do that, we're gonna look at my favorite parable in the Bible because it's so crazy to me. It's in Luke chapter 16. So turn there, I'm gonna read it for us. This, in many ways, is the opposite of the parable that started this series. And Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called the manager in. And he asked him, what what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, "What, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the parable we're going to talk about today. You know, there's this, uh, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, we have Three Crosses University in this room. Pastor Buzz teaches that. And, and we've been talking this semester about how to study the Bible and different literary techniques of looking at texts. And, and one of the major techniques of studying the scriptures is letting scripture interpret scripture. And so we're going to look at this parable, which might be kind of confusing because it doesn't seem very logical, through the lens of another piece of scripture, which is the parable that started this series. Because as we kind of put them up on the screen side by side, you're going to see that these two parables are eerily similar, but different in every way. And so as we walk through this, this is one where like, I don't normally have a lot of notes, but I've got a lot of notes and I want you to take a lot of notes because I'm going to just 
throw a bunch of lessons out there today. So I'm going to give you three observations from each parable. I'm going to give you three lessons from both parables. Then I'm going to give you two priorities to live by. Then I'm going to give you two challenges, right? So if you're already bored, take a nap. Now wake up. We're going to do this, and we're going to start by comparing and contrasting the parable of the rich fool, right? The guy who got filthy rich, had a great year, and then he died. And Jesus said, that guy's an idiot. Versus this guy who had a very bad day at work, got fired, squandered his master money, and Jesus said, now this guy gets it, right? So we're gonna compare and contrast these two parables. So we'll put the first kind of pair of contrasting statements on the screen. In the first parable, a business owner has a great year and gets rich. Right? Remember, the land of a certain man produced an abundant harvest. In the second parable, an employee has a bad year and gets fired. Right? You don't have to tell us which one you most relate with. Right? But two parables, two very different starting points. And so lesson number one that we learn as we compare these two parables is that God does not care about how much money you have. God cares about what you do with the money you do have. That's something you can write down. God does not care about how much money you have. God cares what you do with how much money you do have. Think about the series that we're in called How to Get Rich. Getting rich has nothing to do with how much you think about your money. Getting rich in real life has to do with how you spend the money you do have. And in the same way as God is talking about values and finance and comparing these two parables, he's not ultimately concerned with, oh, this guy was rich, so he was great or bad. This guy was poor, so he was great or bad. Jesus is ultimately concerned about what each guy did with the money God placed in his hand, had entrusted to him as a stewardship. And this reminded me of the... the, the teachings of Paul in the book of Philippians, right? This is, uh, I think it was written on Steph Curry's shoe, if you've been watching the Warriors preseason here, right? Uh, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Right? Paul's not talking about financial stewardship, but Paul is talking here about the fact that whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter to Jesus. Right? But what matters is your heart, what matters is your contentment, and in these two parables, Jesus says, it doesn't matter how much you have, it matters what you do with what you do have. That's the first thing we see. All right, second set, we'll give you another pair of contrasting statements about these two parables. They both have an idea, right? One guy gets rich, one guy gets fired. They both have an idea. The rich guy has an idea. I will save these resources so that I can be comfortable on the other side of this thing, right? Build bigger barns, set up an annuity. I'm gonna set myself up for success. Eat, drink, and be merry because I got all the money in the bank that I could ever need. That's his idea. The fired guy has an idea. Very similar, but very different. I will spend these resources so that I can be comfortable on the other side of this thing. He realizes, right? If you understand the context of this parable, the household manager was most likely not merely employee. Most likely he was a servant in his master's household. And so he relied on him not just for a paycheck, but he relied on him for food and housing and comfort, right? Every aspect of his life was provided by this rich man. And so when he gets fired, he doesn't just need a new job. He needs a new house. He needs a new way to feed his family. He needs a new way to survive and live and thrive in the world. And so his idea is before his last day of work, he's going to spend all of the master's money, right? The word in the Greek is squander, all of the master's money, uh, 
because he wants to set himself up for success on the other side. Both of these men are interested in life on the other side of this day, but one guy's, one guy's philosophy is I'm gonna save it, and the other guy says I'm gonna spend somebody else's money. And so this is lesson number two. God does not give you money so that you will hoard it for yourself. God gives you money so that you will invest it wisely. Invest it wisely. Right? God is not, I'm not saying God is against like retirement necessarily. God is not against like the stock market investing or real estate development or however you do investment, right? God wants you to wisely invest. God is against hoarding, right? God does not want you to have a ton of money in the stock market just making millions of dollars so that you can just hold it till you die and then oops, right? God wants you to invest it wisely, use it for his kingdom purposes. I was thinking a lot about the parable of the talents this week where God says he gives a different amount of money to each person and he expects that when he comes back, the person gives him the money back with a return on his financial investment, right? And so that one guy at the end of the line says, I was scared of the master, so I buried my money in the crown because I didn't want to lose it. And God says, you're an idiot, right? That's the word for fool. You're a fool. You could have stuck it in the bank and at least made interest on it. Don't you know I want return on my investment? I put money in your hand. I don't want you to hoard it. I don't want you to hide it. I don't want you to put it under a bowl. I want you to invest it wisely, right? Invest can mean spend it on his purposes. Invest can mean make more of it so that you can spend it on his purposes. But God does not give you money so that you can hoard it for yourself. God gives you money so you can invest it wisely. Then kind of the big turning point of these two parables side by side, the business owner, spoiler alert, he dies with a big empty house and a ton of money and Jesus calls him a fool. The, the poor man, the manager, leaves his job, he doesn't die, that's nice, leaves his job with a new home, a ton of friends, and is called wise. It says the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus uses that as a jumping off point to teach a lesson about how the people of this world do better with resources than God's people because they know how to use them to get the things they want, right? So if you're writing down these lessons, lesson number three is this. The goal is not to die with a ton of money in the bank. The goal is to die with a ton of friends in eternity. Friends in eternity. You're thinking, Danny, where'd you get this idea of eternity? I'll tell you, it's because the next thing that Jesus says is in verse nine. The moral of this parable, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to make friends so that when the worldly wealth is gone, you're going to walk into eternity and be welcomed by all these people that you used your money on somehow, right? Which kind of encapsulate that whole thing in one phrase, it's this, Jesus gives you permission to spend his money on your eternal best interests. This is the moral of the whole series, right? Jesus gives you permission to spend his money on your eternal best interests, right? That word eternal, if you wrote it down, like circle it, highlight it if you're on your phone, like 
double click, try to figure out how to highlight it and bold it or something, right? Eternal best interests, right? This is not Jesus giving carte blanche to use his money to give yourself a cushy life in this world, right? That's parable number one. He says, you're an idiot. You're going to die and your Tesla's going to go to a junkyard. That's how it's going to work, right? He gives you permission to use your money in this world to benefit you in the next world, the world to come, eternal dwellings. And so the question that comes as we look at this concept is how do you spend your money to benefit you in eternity? And there's two things we see in this text and in these chapters of scripture that kind of give us a context of how to use money to benefit ourselves in eternity. This might be new to you. This is why I'm making you write these things down. Think about them later. Two places where you can spend money. Priority number one. If you want to invest in your eternal best interest, spend money on your relationship with the Lord. Now, don't freak out. I'm going to tell you about this for a little bit. I'm not saying buy a ticket with your worldly money to heaven. I'm not, that's not it, right? There are some religious groups around the world throughout history that says if you give us enough money, you can ensure your place in heaven. Christianity is not one of them, right? That is not how this works. You cannot pay your way into the kingdom of heaven. There is a price to be paid to enter the kingdom of heaven, but who paid the price for you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus paid the price for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a cost of discipleship that we pay on this earth, but the true cost of discipleship was paid by Jesus on the cross. He paid our debt. He paid our way. When we stand before God and he says, why should I let you enter this kingdom called heaven? Your response should not be because I gave a $5 million check to world missions, right? He'll say, pumpkin spice latte, right? <laughs> Your answer, if you're looking for the answer, you can write this one down too, is Jesus paid for me to be here. That's how we get into the kingdom of heaven. And so a lot of times we read this passage because we know that and we jump over the Lord and we start wondering what is Jesus really talking about? Because obviously he's not saying we should buy our way into the heaven, but I, I want to encourage you not to jump over Jesus <laughs> to get the moral Jesus has for you in this lesson because the primary thing that we see this man needs as he's losing his job is he needs a home. He needs a place to live. He needs a dwelling place on the next season of life. And then Jesus says, that's what you need to invest your worldly money for, is finding someone who can welcome you into an eternal dwelling place. So yes, Jesus is the one who paid for you to enter your eternal dwelling place, but who is the person who is currently preparing you an eternal dwelling place? You can tell me this one too. Also Jesus, also Jesus. Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. And so what he's talking about is spending your worldly wealth in a way that is investing that when you get into heaven, you feel like I've invested my resources to be welcomed into this place. So what does that mean? I want you to think about investing in your money in your relationship somewhere else, right? Think about investing in your kids. Right? Some of you, if you have kids, you probably know that we invest a lot of money in our kids. A lot of sports, school, books, bills, electricity. They leave the door open in the winter, right? All these things. We invest a lot of money in our kids. And we don't invest a relationship, our money in a relationship with our kids because we're hoping we can buy a relationship with our kids. I guess some parents do. I don't do that. You don't do that. 
We invest money in our relationship with our kids because we want to develop a relationship with our kids. We want to have a great relationship with our kids. We want to have a relationship where our kids are great, solid adults. When they become adults, we are still hanging out with them and talking to them, and we're almost like friends as adults because we've invested in this relationship year after year, day after day. So we use our worldly wealth to invest in our kids so that someday our kids will be healthy and strong and independent from us. And also, we will have this relationship with them as adults because we invested in them as children. That's why we do it, not to buy their friendship, but because we want our relationship to be strong and developed, and we want it to last. I wonder if Jesus is not saying that you should use your money to invest in your relationship with the Lord so that when you step into the heavenly places, you see someone face to face that you spent a lot of time and money getting to know in this planet, right? Because some of us picture we get to heaven and it's like, okay, uh, I need to just, just don't forget the, the answer, right? And Jesus paid for my sins, Jesus paid for my sins, Jesus paid for my sins, right? You get to like the, this is not a real dramatic reenactment, this is not gonna happen, but you get to the heavenly gates or whatever and you know, somebody says, hey, why should I let you into heaven? He's like, oh, I'm actually looking for Jesus. And he's like, oh, I am Jesus. You're like, oh, uh, I know, I just, uh, uh, I saw you paid for me to be here. He's like, come on, right, just come in. That's not gonna happen, right, but that's not what you want. What you want, in my dumb illustration, is you to approach the heavenly gates and see Jesus in the distance and be like, Jesus! He's like, oh my gosh, it's you, right? And you run and you hug. It's like, this is amazing. I've been talking to you remotely my whole life, and now I get to see you face to face, right? Because you've spent your whole life investing in this relationship so that when you get there, it's like you're reuniting with a lost friend, right? Not like Jesus gave you a ticket to heaven at a Billy Graham crusade and it's all crumpled up and you're like, I hope this still works. Has this expired when I get there, right? That's, use worldly wealth to invest in your relationship with the Lord. It was interesting was I was uh, looking at kind of the Old Testament model of financial giving. A lot of us are like, oh, that's the tithe. They gave 10% of their income. And they did, right? They, the first, it's called the first fruits. Anytime money would come in, the first 10% would go back to the Lord through the, through the local church community, right? But really, when you study the Old Testament giving patterns, the people of the Old Testament actually spent almost 25% of their income on kingdom purposes, right? The first 10% went directly to the Lord, the tithe, and then as you look at the Old Testament text, you see that they reserved another 10%, a second 10%, now we're at 20, a second 10% just to set aside for religious pilgrimages, right? To, fr to fund their trip to Jerusalem, to fund uh, the grain they needed for the sacrifices there, to fund maybe the temple tax, their lodging, or the food for their kids, falafel, whatever they're doing in Jerusalem, right? That's what I ate in Jerusalem. They're putting aside money so that they'll have resources to go and visit the Lord and his people on these high, holy days. And so they took 10% of their money, they gave it to the Lord, then they took another 10% of the money, and they allocated it so that they would always have resources to invest in their spiritual walk, in their relationship with God, in their pilgrimage as they lived as God's people on earth. It's kind of interesting. I, I wonder if, I'm not saying you should give 10% of your income to religious pilgrimages, but imagine for a second if you took 10% of your income on top of what you already give and said, you know what, I'm just going to have a bucket of money so that anytime I want to invest in my relationship with the Lord, there's money in a bucket for that, right? Anytime I hear about a book, I'm going to buy it. 
Anytime I need a Bible or someone needs a Bible, I'm going to buy it for them. Anytime there's an opportunity for my kid to go to camp or for me to go to a discipleship retreat or for me to go on this Israel trip or whatever it is, right? Anything that would be me investing financially in my relationship with God, the money would be there. And I wouldn't have to think, oh man, I really want to I really go on this trip or to this camp. I really want to send my kids to this uh, missions trip or whatever it is, but I just can't afford it right now. You'd say, no, I actually set aside money every year so that any time my family or I get an idea of how I can invest in my relationship with God, it's almost like my right hand doesn't know what my left hand is doing because my left hand knows there's a bucket right there and I could throw the money at amazon.com and buy the devotional for my child or whatever it is, right? That's an example of using worldly wealth to invest in your relationship with the Lord. That's a fine line, right? It doesn't cost anything to grow in your faith, right? I'm not saying that. But I wonder what would happen if you decided to take a portion of your money and say, this exists to invest in my relationship with God, what would you do? Right? Would you take days off of work because you have the bandwidth now to go and pray and have solitude retreats? Would you take your family on, on missions experiences or cross-cultural experiences and sharing the gospel? Would you find places that you and your family could invest in things happening in the community and advancing kingdom purposes there? What would you do if you said, you know what, I've just got all this money and it's earmarked to invest in my relationship with the Lord, right? Not God's purposes, not world missions, right? But, but your relationship with the Lord. Invest in a way that when you stand face to face with God in eternity, you think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I spent all those resources getting to know you because now I recognize you when I'm here, right? Lesson number one, invest, or priority number one, invest in your relationship with the Lord, right? Priority number two, right? Because Jesus says, use worldly wealth to make not just friend for yourself, friends for yourself, that, they, that you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings by these friends. So who are the rest of the friends? So this is, you're gonna have to stick with me on this, but here's priority number two, of two, there's only two, so write this down. Priority number two, spend money to build relationships with people in need. You can also write the poor. And the reason that I, I put this as like these are the other friends besides Jesus you should be investing in is because as you look at every single parable we've studied and every single section of text we've studied in this series, the, the needy, the poor, the disenfranchised show up in every single one. Right, the first week, the guy who builds bigger barns and then dies, Jesus says, that guy's an idiot. And then he goes and tells the disciples, so you need to sell your possessions, give to the poor, because you can't take it with you, so give it to those who need it. Right, second parable, Jesus talks about throwing a party. He's like, don't invite all the rich and powerful to your party. He says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And then he says this, which tags into this last parable. Although they cannot repay you, you will, re you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the righteous. So if you invest in the poor in this life, Someday you will stand in the kingdom of God and you will have these relationships and gratitude and thankfulness with people who will spend eternity with you. That was in week number two. 
Week number three, Jesus says, if you follow me, just so you know, you're going to become a poor person, right? Put it all in. You, no place to lay my head, right? That's the cost of discipleship. Week four, Jesus tells a story about a man who became poor, who squandered his master's possessions, the prodigal son, and in his poverty, he found the Lord. Over and over again, we hear these stories of poverty being a good thing and money being used to invest in folks to get them out of that place and bring them into God's banquet, into God's kingdom with you. In fact, right after this parable, there's another one. It's called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And it's about this man who was super rich. That's why he's called The Rich Man. And he lived in this like big house on a hill. And this poor man named Lazarus lived at his gate. And it was just totally impoverished. He was like covered in sores, just a bad experience in this world. And Lazarus would go back, or the rich man would go back and forth past this man every day and never pay him any attention. And then they both die, right? This is worse than the first parable. They both die. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man says, uh, can someone send Lazarus, the poor man, send him down to hell and just give me something to drink because I'm dying down here. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. You didn't serve this man in this life, so he's not gonna serve you in the life to come. Come on, man. Your time is up. You're dead. You're in hell, right? Don't get that far. Learn your lesson in this parable. The reason God has given you wealth, if you have wealth, is because he wants to use your wealth to invest in those who are poor and disenfranchised, to invest your resources on people who need it. There's a proverb, I think it's in Proverbs 17, that says, he who invests in the poor lends to the Lord, and he'll be repaid by the Lord. It's this idea that God says, hey, my guy needs some money over here. He can't pay his rent. I gave you some so you can give him some, and I'll pay you back in heaven. You're like, ah, I don't know. Is he really going to pay me back in heaven? Because I have a buddy. He always says he's going to pay me back. Is he really going to pay me back, right? When God says he's going to pay you back, God pays you back, right? But this is kind of the conflicting value piece, right, where he's probably not going to pay you back with cash money in heaven. He's probably got something else in mind. So we, as people who do have means, especially us living in America, living in the Bay, right, obviously we're making more money no matter how much you make than 99% of people around the world. We are the rich in the world. And we have to be confronted with a passage like this saying that the reason God has made you rich is so that you will invest your money on your relationship with him. You'll invest your money on people in need. And by doing that, you will not secure a place in heaven, but you will be welcomed in heaven and think, oh my goodness, it was worth it. The first week we asked a hard question. At the end of that rich man parable, which was, we said, you are living on borrowed time with borrowed money. What are you going to do? And some of you have done amazing things with that. Some of you are still wrestling with that. And so I'm going to raise the stakes and ask you a harder question as we end this series. And it's a question that comes out of this parable. The question is this, how long will you keep wasting God's resources on temporary things? God's temporary resources are designed to be invested in eternal things. So how long will you keep wasting God's resources on temporary things? Right, Jesus gives us a beautiful principle, right? That you invest his, his resources on eternal things, you'll be repaid, right? And, and yet we still have a problem because we love God, but we love our money, 
And it's really hard to kind of break out of the mold and say, I'm gonna love God with my money. And so we squander God's temporary resources on temporary things. You know, if you read the the next few verses here, um, they're kind of scary. (laughs) But I'm going to read them because they're in the Bible, and it's the whole point of this parable. Jesus says in verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So many of us spend our lives, including me, squandering, squandering God's money. I think to find some relief from the squirmy place that Jesus puts us, you know, we've been comparing this parable of the shrewd manager with the parable of the rich fool, because there's a lot of overlaps there. But there's another parable that has a ton of overlaps with the parable of the shrewd manager, and it's the parable right before it. Actually, if you look in your Bible, you see there's not even a break between the parables. There's no teaching segment between the parables. It just flows from one parable to the next, from the prodigal son to the parable of the shrewd manager. And those parables, if you link them together, are very similar, right? They're both about a man who's been squandering his master's money, right? The prodigal son squandering his master's money, his father's money in a worldly place on loose living, right? And this new guy, he squandered his master's money and they both have a come to Jesus moment, right? One guy actually comes to Jesus, the other guy comes in a different way to Jesus, right? But they both find themselves in this worldly place at rock bottom, realizing that if they don't make some hard decisions quickly, they're going to be homeless and hungry. And so the prodigal son says, okay, I need to go back to my master and beg for a job, my father, beg for a job and hope that he lets me back into his house. This shrewd manager says, I'm gonna spend all my master's money to make friends so that I can be welcomed into another household when I get fired from this household. So they both have a strategy to ensure a home for themselves on the other side of financial demise. And so the prodigal son starts to walk back towards his father and he gets his speech ready to beg for a job. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired servants. And the father sees him a long way off. He squandered the father's money. Now he's groveling and begging for just a chance at life. And the father does not give him a chance to give his speech. He he doesn't make him grovel. He doesn't make him take a job. He doesn't make him work his way back up the organization. The father runs to him, wraps his arms around him, lavishes resources on him, throws a party for him, begins to celebrate, gives him his inheritance back, puts the ring back on his finger, puts the robe back on his shoulders, and the father, instead of saying, sorry, you wasted it all, he says, welcome home, here's some more. Right, so, so here's the moral of the story for you if you feel like I've been spending my whole life wasting God's money. It's good news. Right? We'll put it on the screen. If you've been squandering God's money, come to him with open hands and he will begin to lavish his generosity on you. 
He will forgive you of your sin. If you've been sinning in the way you've been spending, he'll, he'll forgive it. He'll give you another chance. He'll put resources in your hand and say, now spend these on my purposes. And when you spend the resources on his purposes, he'll put more money into your hands to spend on his purposes, right? If you're looking for like a backdoor how to get rich, here's the one biblical backdoor of how to get rich. Spend your money on God's purposes and God says, good job, here's some more, here's some more, here's some more. With whoever has been given little or used it unwisely, I'm not gonna give them more. Whoever's been entrusted with much, I'm gonna give them more. I'll read it from the Bible. He says this, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said, if you paid the cost of discipleship, if you're all in for me, you said, Jesus, you can have all of my money. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you more, not just in heaven, but on earth as well. Whoever is faithful with much will be entrusted with much more. So if you've squandered God's money, come to God, and you're rehearsing your speech, you don't need a speech, he just wants to hug you and say, let's go after this thing, right? Let's start doing eternal work with temporary resources. You know, I promised that I wasn't going to pass the plate. But this would be the time where I should pass the plate, right? <laughs> Jesus promises you give a bunch of money, you're going to get a bunch of money in return. But this is why I'm not going to pass the plate. One, because that would be unethical. And two, because in this text, when Jesus gives this teaching, the religious church leaders are furious. Notice that? Like, look at the next verse. This is the last thing we'll look at. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Why would church leaders be mad that Jesus was trying to unleash church people to spend their money on kingdom resources? I think it's because the church leaders were so consumed with the 10% that they thought God's people owed them, that they were so scared Jesus was giving them freedom to spend their money elsewhere as well. Right, I read this text, I read the, the whole Bible in terms of money, I read Jesus' teachings on financial stewardship, and the thing that I realize is that Jesus is not trying to chip away at the church leader's 10%. Jesus is trying to unlock the other 90. This idea that stewardship is the idea that all of your money is God's money. Right? So Jesus says, whatever, right? whatever you're willing to spend, invest it in your relationship with me, invest it on those who need it, invest it in my kingdom resources, invest it on reaching lost people, and I'm telling you, you will see an eternal return on that investment and a temporary return on that investment when you hand more and more of your money over to me. And so I'm gonna give you two challenges. One is real basic, and everybody can do it. One is advanced, and it's for like the all-stars of Christianity in here, right? So we're like, oh, that's me, good, that's for you, right? <laughs> Basic challenge. If you're looking to kind of dabble into this principle of spending your resources on God and on his purposes, here's what I want you to do. After church today or tomorrow, whatever, go to the bank, take out some money. I don't care how much money, take $20 out, $200 out, $2,000 out, right? Take out, not a huge amount of money, take out enough money that you can give away, right? Take out some money and say, you know what, I took out this money because God wants me to use it to invest in my relationship with him or in someone who needs it. And then like, don't literally do this, but hold it in your hand until you figure out what God wants you to do with it. 
and then release it, say thank you God, then go back to the bank and do it again, right? Repeat until rich, right? Go back to the bank, or poor, right? Go back to the bank and do it again. That's what I'm saying, don't take out thousands of dollars and then uh, I'll have you sign like a little thing before you do it, right? Go and ask the Lord, how much do you want me to give out this week to people in need? And then pray, God, show me where people can use it and then give it away and then repeat, repeat, repeat. Build a habit in your life where you set aside resources for the poor or for your investment in your relationship with the Lord. You know, I said that God's people gave away almost 25% of income in, in the Old Testament. That's because the first 10% went to the ministry of the church, the community, whatever. The second 10% was set aside for religious purposes and investment in their relationship with God. And then there was a third 10% that happened once every three years where they would take the third 10% of their income and they would give it to the poor in their community. So it's a three and a third percent, right, prorated, right? So tw- 10, 20 23 and a third percent. And so they had this money that they always had so that when this time of festival would come, they would all take 10% of their grain and all this and they'd make sure that the poor had enough to eat for the next three years. That was part of the rhythm of life of God's people. All right, so I'm not saying wait three years and give 10% of your money away. I'm saying go to the bank today, take 20 bucks out, figure out what God wants you to do with it, and then do it again. Now this is not, I didn't make this up. This is actually from First century AD, the church fathers wrote a book called the Didache. And in chapter one, verse six of the Didache, it says this about the money you've reserved to give to the poor, called your alms. It says, let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you should give. Let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you shall give. This was written like 50, 60, 70 AD, like the same time as the New Testament was written. This was the practice of early Christians was to reserve money for the poor and to not let it out of their filthy grip until they're ready for it to go out of their filthy grip and into the hands of someone who needed it, right? So you either, get, get to, you either need to get used to holding onto money all day or you need to get used to giving money away. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, Jesus says. That's the basic commandment. Let me give you an advanced one. It's for you all-stars. I want you to think about this, and then I want you to do the math, and then I want you to do it. My challenge for you, if you're like, I already do this, I already give money to the poor, I give my 10%, right? I do all that, I give to missions, what, what else, right? I'm ready for more, right? Okay, here you go. I, <laughs> I wanna challenge you to increase your giving towards kingdom purposes by a percentage point a year for the rest of your career, or the rest of your life, right? So that means if you're currently giving 10% of your money to the church or whatever you're doing, right? You're like, I'm ready for more, great. If you're not ready for more, do this anyway, right? I want you next year to make it 11. Not like give it to the church, right? But figure out, I've got now a new 1% allocated. What am I gonna do with it? Right? Maybe you're gonna give to world missions. You're gonna give to our missions partners 1% of your income, right? Maybe you're gonna hold it or take half of it. You're gonna keep it in your pocket, like I just said. And the other half, you're gonna give away to someone in need, right? Maybe you're gonna invest some of it because you wanna give $10,000 checks in your retirement over and over again. And so you've got a strategy for that money. I don't care, right? But do that. Find a 1%, set it aside, figure out how you're going to build into God's kingdom and invest in your relationship with the Lord with that 1%. And then the next year, do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again, right? And if you think about that now, it's going to feel like a lot of money, right? Because you're like, okay, I've got like 20 years left to work. That's like now I'm at 30%. That's, don't think about it that way, right? Think about it this way, right? If you make, say, say your family makes $100,000 a year, right? That's a lot of money. If you make $100,000 a year, that's like, what, 85 bucks a month extra next year? Like, I would guess that if you're making 100 grand a year 
you can spend 85 bucks a month on something, a bill, right, next year. Right? Maybe you can't, so you've got a few months to figure that out, right? But then the next year, it's, it's, it's a little baby step again. And the next year, it's a little baby step again. And the next year, it's a little baby step again. But by the time you're nearing retirement, you're that person who's living off of like 40% of their income and giving away like 60% of their income, right? Or you're that person who's able to write those $1,000 checks, $5,000 checks. Or you're that person who's able to die and leave an endowment of $5 million to some charity that you care about deeply that's doing kingdom work around the world because you've had a strategy not to get rich for yourself and hoard it, but you've built a long-term investment strategy to grow and grow and grow throughout your life, to be somebody who finds themselves rich in faith, rich in God's favor, and rich with thousands and thousands of people in the kingdom of God, that when you stand before him someday, you'll realize, man, God used me to have a part in these people being here. That's, that's truly rich, right? You can die with $20 million in the bank. Good job, you're dead. Or you could die, and like somebody I, I knew who passed away said, my goal is to die with zero dollars in my bank account or when Jesus comes back, right? And someday you'll stand before him and you realize that you did the wisest thing that any human can do with money. You spent it all on God's kingdom purposes to launder it, <laughs> to make it last through eternity when you step into God's kingdom and see the return on your temporary investment. That's the end of our series. We're not gonna pass a plate. We're not gonna do a building campaign. But we're gonna ask you, without having to tell us, what is God saying to you? How does God want you to use the resources he's placed in your hands for the benefit of your relationship with him and for the benefit of the kingdom God is building on the other side of eternity? I wanna pray for us, and then we'll move into worship. So pray with me. Jesus, I pray that we would be a church of people who are all walking around sweaty-palmed, anxious to see how you're gonna call us to use worldly wealth to bless somebody. We pray that it would almost be a game for us, that, that we would realize that money is just paper and metal, but it's a tool that we can use to invest in our relationship with you, and we can use to bless people in a way that will impact them for eternity. We pray that we would be a church who walks into heaven together someday and gets to see the impact of our individual resources. We pray that we'd be people who would be humble and anonymous and no one had, would have any idea that we've been so generous and so impactful in the kingdom until we get there, and I'm pretty sure we're still gonna wanna be anonymous about that when we get there too. I pray that we would be a church filled with people that everyone thinks are living on meager paychecks because we give so much away to advance your kingdom around the world. I pray that it would be people who you give vision to of how we can be giving away millions, billions, thousands of dollars in our retirement years because of how we've invested, not in our own retirement, but how we've prepared to invest in your kingdom on the other side. I pray, I pray that you would give us plans of what happens to our assets when we do die so that we don't live the lamentable reality of dying with tons of money in the bank that was unleveraged for your kingdom's sake. I pray that you would give us individual visions of what it means for us and for our families, whether we're six years old or 90 years old, how we can use worldly wealth to make friends for ourselves that we may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We pray that we would love money less, that we would love you more, 
and that we'd use our money to love you more. That we wouldn't be idolatrous with any of this, but that we'd be the freest people on the planet because money doesn't own us anymore. And I pray for anyone who is not gonna enter into the kingdom of heaven, not because of their money, but because they don't know Jesus, that in this moment, they would stop thinking about money and they'd start thinking about you. That someday they will stand before you and have to give an account of how they've stewarded, not their checkbook, but how they've stewarded their lives on this planet. And pray that this would be the moment that they turn their lives over to you, that they cash in everything and say, Jesus, I need you. I need a relationship with you. You paid for my entrance to heaven. Your resurrection promises life. I need that new life that lasts forever. And let them turn to you and be transformed from the inside out. I pray that you would guide us in what you have next for each of us in this room even if it has nothing to do with what we've talked about today. Pray that you would be in our ears, in our hearts, and in our lives in a way that the world looking on around us knows that you are real and that we love you because of the way we live and talk and think and act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.